0: Starts with the right golf ball, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Edel Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in, and the McLemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to a very special edition of Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. And tonight, I have the unbelievable pleasure of having Mr. Gary Player join me for a tenth time in the ninth year in a row the weekend prior to the Masters. This is a conversation I look forward to every year, and I'm very grateful to Mr. Player for joining me again this year. I want to give you just a few things that you may or may not be aware of about his career. You probably know that he has won nine major championships, three Masters, three Open championships, two PGA championships, and one U.S. Open. He was the third player to win the modern-day Career Grand Slam at the age of 29. He came after Ben Hogan and Gene Sarazen, and then followed by Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods later on. What you may not be aware of is he is the only player to win the Career Grand Slam on the regular tour and the Champions Tour. As a golf course designer and architect, He has over 325 design projects around the world on five different continents. He's authored or co-authored 36 golf books. He played in 52 consecutive Masters tournaments, which is a record. At the age of 80, he made a hole-in-one in in the Masters Part 3 contest, his fourth ace in that event, which is also a Masters record. And I couldn't be more honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hi, Mr. Player. Thank you for coming back and joining me again this year.
1: Chris, how are you doing? This is Gary. I've just done my 300 sit-up while you having a beer.
0: <laughs> no beer yet tonight, Mr. Player. i got to be sharp when I talk to you.
1: <laughs> well, I heard you're not drinking any more, but I heard you're not drinking any less, so that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs> how are you, Mr. Player?
1: I've never been, better my, never been better in my life.
0: So, Mr. Player, as we look ahead... To the masters. For those who aren't aware, when you arrive in Augusta and you turn off Washington Road onto Magnolia Lane, you'd like to get out of the car and walk up the driveway. Talk about why that is and what you reflect on during the walk.
1: Well, first of all, Chris, you know I suffered a, like a junkyard dog when I was a young kid. A lot of adversity. Of course, that was the greatest gift bestowed upon me to to have adversity in your life. is the greatest gift you can have because if you got the courage. And the mindset from adversity becomes success and joy. So when I go along and I enter the gates of Augusta, the one word that comes to mind is gratitude. To have won it three times, second three times, the top 10, 14 times, the most number of cuts, and the most number of times, 52. And the honor of meeting President Eisenhower and Bobby Jones and the like and the players that I've met, and the dinners we go to. I mean, I've always said if there's a golf course in heaven, that's where I'd like to be the head pro, but I'm not in a hurry to leave. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> as, as you talk about, Mr. Player, playing in it 52 times, as I look back over your career, you first played there, I believe, in 1957. You're 21 years old. So if you add it all up, correct, you were you have yeah. spent over a year of your life on the grounds there at Augusta National. Does it become like a second home for you?
1: Well, it, it really has. I, I think this is my 65th plus-minus occasion at will I be, uh, being at Augusta. And uh, it's a treat. Uh, they know what to cater for. Uh, it's a big plus being played in the same place every year. And the players... The players have made this, the tournament that it is, the publicity around the world and the drama and the excitement that has existed. You know, it's hard to duplicate it when you play on the same course every year. I mean, when I think back of Arnold, Jack, Nicholas, and myself walking down the fairways, battling it out, beating each other and getting standing ovation, you know, that's a journey that is just unequal.
0: Is there a place on the property that's extra special to you? Maybe a place that, you know, we don't normally see. Is there a place that you want to make sure you go to and spend some time because it means a little bit extra to you?
1: No, I think the entire place. And also, you know, I'm a fanatic. So I love to go to the gym there, you know, in that surrounding. It's uh, it's something special. But I, I just think the service at the club and, you know, the waiters that I've known there for years, and the reception I get when going back there. You know, the greatest gift bestowed on a human being is love. And, you know, this is uh, something that I get when I go around the world and I've traveled more miles than any human being ever. I was just in India, and the love that I received there, and the good manners of the children and the people and the high standard of education, and this is what made America great. You've got to keep striving for education and the free enterprise system. We've got to keep educating the people, educating them to the hill.
0: Mr. Player, on your way to victory in 1974, you hit a shot into the 17th green that ended up inches from the hole. And what I love about that shot is you hit it, you stamp down your divot, you walked over, laid your club against your golf bag. Then the ball landed on the green as if you knew from the moment that you struck it, it was going to be a great shot. What do you remember about that sequence of events?
1: I mean, when I arrived there, my African-American caddy, Eddie McCoy, who I loved, said to me, he says, hey, Gary, man, I need a roof on my house. I've got a lot of children. I said, man, we're going to get you a roof, my man. And I'll never forget, I stood there, and as I hit the shot, which the TV cameras didn't pick up, I said, Eddie, I don't even need the putter. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and it finished eight inches from the hole. Even Ray Charles could make that putt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mr. plan and, and that birdie gave, gave you a two-stroke lead going into 18 over your playing partners who were Dave Stockton and Tom Weiskopf. But I guess you really couldn't breathe too easy because a birdie by Mr. Stockton, and if you happen to bogey the 18th, which is sort of what happened in 61 when you got your first win, when Mr. Palmer got a little bit ahead of himself thinking that he had already won the golf tournament, and Jim Colbert had holed out just a little bit ahead of you for an ego on uh, on 18. For our young listeners, talk about not getting ahead of yourself.
1: I love what you said, there. There's no such thing in golf as a lead, And yet the media, every single year that we're in existence, a man's got a six-shot lead and they say, well, he's got it in the bag. We saw uh, Berger, uh six-shot lead the other day, blow it. We saw Greg Norman, a six-shot lead uh, at Augusta, blow it. We saw Arnold Palmer with a six-shot lead with nine holes to go and blow it. I was seven behind Tom Watson in nineteen seventy eight and shot sixty four and one. The next week I was seven behind Balasteros, shot sixty-five and one. And the next week I was six behind Andy Big Andy Bean and I shot sixty four and won that. The next week I lost by one shot. So what has got to happen? A man, a young boy, don't tell me how far he hits the ball. That's all I hear now. Gorillas hit it a long way. Tell me what sort of a mind he's got. Tell me whether he loves adversity. Tell me whether he's a great putter. Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson were terrible drivers of the golf ball, and they were number one and two in the world. So putting and the mind, I don't see DeChambro winning every week. Let's fast
0: forward to 1978. You speak about coming from behind, and the whole world, I believe, thinks you're too old to win the Masters at this point, at the the age of 42 years, five months, nine days. Did you feel
1: written off in 78? No, I didn't, because uh, at 42, you're only reaching your prime. I mean, I'm 86, and, you know, I'm looking at 106. So, you know, I've just passed my prime. I'm still shooting par. I've beaten my age over 2,000 times in a row. I'm working out. I'm traveling all over the world. I'm working hard. I, I I try and have two meals a day. I don't always succeed. I'm exercising, I'm laughing a lot, as you can hear, and I've got love in my heart. And so if you do that, there's no reason why you shouldn't live to well over 100. There's somebody on the planet right now who's going to live to 150 because we're going to find out things. Eating is the biggest danger. You know, we talk about COVID and my heart bleeds for people that have died of COVID. You know the biggest pandemic right now, of course, heart attacks are number one, cancer is number two that the pandemic right now in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, is diabetes, sugar diabetes. We're eating ourselves into the ground.
0: Mr. Player, you talk about love in your heart. In the 60s, when the Big Three was born, Mr. Palmer was America's favorite player. The crowds were actively rooting for him and against you and Mr. Nicholas. I, I can remember hearing stories about people stomping their feet around the greens and signs being held, hit it here, fat Jack, and things of that nature. What was it like for you and Mr. Nicholas trying to compete and win major tournaments when the crowds were actually rooting against you?
1: It was very difficult playing with Arnold because, uh, you know, the crowds were boisterous. But you see, that's when you've got to have a strong mind. If you haven't got a strong mind, pack up and go home. A lot of players today who are not familiar with that kind of behavior would never, never uh, be able to play. They're not used to that. I didn't go through what Jack went through. Jack went through a lot worse than what I went through. Jack would, they would be sitting holding up a sign at the back of the green. Hit it, yeah, fat Jack. And Arnold would hit the ball 30 foot from the hole and they'd go crazy. And Jack would hit it 10 foot and you'd hear a few people clapping. But you know... Overall, the people have been fantastic to me. I got no complaints whatsoever. It was tough for Jack. I did have demonstrators against me. In 1969, I lost the PGA to Raymond Floyd in Dayton, Ohio, where the demonstrators threw ice in my eyes and telephone books in my back and charged me on the green and screamed on my backswing and threw balls between my legs, you know, uh, with a five foot, and I only lost by one. So I go to my grave knowing I won 10 majors.
0: And Mr. Player, we talk about Mr. Palmer's heyday, 1958 to 1964. He was fantastic, winning all seven of his majors during that six-year period of time. But in the grand scheme of things, his greatness on the course was very short. He was certainly a great ambassador to the game off the course for many decades. But you were winning majors over a 20-year span. Mr. Nicholas, over a 26-year span, talk about longevity and why people don't consider longevity enough when they're measuring greatness in the game.
1: You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. You have done your homework. Now, let me say this to you first of all. Arnold Palmer was my brother. Arnold Palmer was the greatest PR man for golf that ever lived. Jack Nicholas was the greatest gentleman that I ever played with. But Arnold had no longevity. I mean, today, if I was playing against Arnold Palmer at my age or Jack Nicholas, I'd beat them by 20 shots. Not five, 20. And, but nobody worries about longevity. Surely if you've got an engine and a BMW car and at outlast a Ford or whatever it may be, you know, the one that has the best engine, surely that's what counts a lot. And you've done your homework. Now, Nicholas won for 25 years. He won majors. I won for 20. Palmer won for six. But I was a big Arnold Palmer fan and a big Nicholas fan. And nobody loved the United States of America more than me. My brother went to war from South Africa. When he was 17 to fight with the Americans, Chris, think about that. And, you know, we never got freedom. We never got freedom through uh, negotiating. And PR, they had a fight for it. And a lot of the young students of the world today who love all this socialism have no idea about world affairs. They might be members of Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and all these, but they know very little about world affairs.
0: Mr. Play, I want to get your opinion because today's golf fans don't seem to know much about the history of the game prior to 1997 when Tiger came on tour. Case in point, John Rahm's recent comments about how he intends to play until he wins 19 majors to beat Tiger's record, not Mr. Nicholas's record. The young generation just assumes Tiger has got all the records and he's the greatest player ever. And to second that point, when I talk to a lot of younger fans. When I point out you won nine majors, Jack won eighteen majors, Tom Watson won eight majors, they say, "Well, that was easy for those guys back then because there were only about ten or fifteen good players." Nowadays, a hundred guys could go out there and win a major, and I and I just don't buy that. I don't buy that hey. the top one hundred players of your generation were worse than the top one hundred now. Now I get there's a lot. Maybe the funnel's bigger. Maybe there are more people playing the game. But if you're talking about the top 100 in the world, I don't buy that your generation wasn't as good as today's generation.
1: Am I wrong? That's the biggest hogwash I've ever heard in my life. Now, let me tell you something. One player said that to me a while ago, and I came back and I did some studying. And when we played the tour, there were 55 major championship players playing. There ain't 55 playing today. And if you gave, and I mean for John Rom to say to beat Tiger Woods is uh I don't know what he said about majors, that's fine, that's his opinion. But Jack Nicholas has got the most majors and uh he's got eighteen and so if you go by you've got to go by the record book, not what you look like, you've got to go by the record book, and that's all that counts. And let me tell you something. We didn't have a ball that went fifty yards further. We didn't have Metal Woods I mean, at 86, I might miss one fairway a day. In my prime, I missed three. We didn't have greens with no spike marks on it. We had greens full of spike marks, a 100. We raked bunkers with our feet, and now every bunker is raked with a machine from Timbuktu to, to New York. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. And if you look, I'd like to have seen, I would love to have seen a match between Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Gary Player, Lee Trevino, Raymond Floyd, Tom Watson, against the best today. We would have beaten them. What I would like to tell people that they've never heard of, the best putter that ever lived was Bobby Locke from South Africa. He came over here in 1947. And let me tell you something about golfers. The greatest golfer that ever lived was Ben Hogan and Sam Snead. They both went to war for five years in their prime. So that means, and then Hogan came back and had the worst accident any golfer's ever had. And he won nine majors and missed 30 majors in his prime. See, people who don't know history are very quick to give opinions. And so, Sam's if you've given Sam Snead and Ben Hogan this equipment, the conditions we play in today, you would have seen things that you never saw in your life. But in the meantime, Jack Nicklaus has the best record. Don't tell me about this or that or this and that. You want to see the best players are? Look at the record book and that will tell you. Now, I'm a massive Tiger Woods fan. I'm so happy that I heard he might play this coming week at Augusta. I hope so. And he, what he did, you know, is really very exciting for golf. He, he brought so many people into the game. And so did so many of the African-American guys like Charlie Sifford was a tragedy that Charlie suffered. never played in Augusta. Liotta did. What about Vijay Singh? I mean, I can go to a... We had 12 African-Americans playing the tour when I played the tour. They were wonderful guys, and we had a tremendous time in, in our golfing career. I would never change my time, even for all the money that they play for today. And let me tell you something. There is no player... Whoever tells you that hogwash, there's no player playing today that could play as well as Lee Trevino from Peter Green. I can give you that as a guarantee. I watched all the guys playing today. You tell me, who's the best player in the world today? One week it's this guy, then it's that guy, then it's this guy. And I'll tell you what, the teaching, the teaching today is the worst it's ever been in history. If you look carefully, how many guys won major championships? Ten. Ten. Can't play anymore cannot play. That never happened in our time. Anybody who won a major kept playing forever. Teaching for the club members and the teaching for amateurs is fantastic. But all these pros that go to all these teachers, they've ruined their whole careers. They'll never play again. They were winning major championships and changed their swings. And Tiger Woods was the biggest culprit. He won the US Open by 15 shots. Unheard of. Then he goes and has lessons from two different pros. He never won a major for 11 years. If he Listen to what I'm telling you now. If he never went and had lessons, he would have won 20 majors. I guarantee you.
0: Mr. Player, I, I want to get back to your thought on Bobby Locke, because to me, he is one of the greatest players that few people, A, ever heard of or talk about because he was so good that the PGA didn't want him here in this country. Do you mind telling our listeners about how great Bobby Locke was?
1: Well, he came over here and he won seven out of the first 11 tournaments and they barred him. And then at night when he put his clubs at the clubhouse, they went and took his grip off his putter. They put the flags on the right-hand side of the green, anything to try and beat him and he kept winning. And uh he was, he, nobody, you know, I, I look at them, they rate all these so-called experts, rate golfers the best ever. I don't even see Bobby Locke in the top 30. Bobby Locke would have eaten Byron Nelson for breakfast, and they always put Byron Nelson in. That Byron Nelson won five majors, man. I mean, Bobby Locke would have eaten him. I, don't, I mean, I love Byron Nelson. I thought he was a wonderful golfer, but he won all his tournaments during the war when Hogan and Sneed and DeMarit and Mangum were all at war. I mean, I don't put him in my my top 20 players that ever lived, but that's only my opinion.
0: Uh, Mr. Player, I've I've heard you say many times what a great putter, maybe the greatest putter ever that Bobby Locke was, but his putting stroke was pretty unique. He would line the ball up on the toe of the putter, then cut across it, and somehow the ball always found its way into the bottom of the cup. Were you able to glean anything from watching him and what a great putter he was, or was it just marveling at what he was able
1: to do? Well, first of all, you've got to understand he putted on crap. He putted on crap greens. Excuse me using that language. It's the only way I can describe it. Now they put on snooker tables. Please believe me when I tell you a snooker table. I played at Jack Nicholas's golf course this morning the Bears Club. I, you know, I just can't get over it. It's like putting on a snooker table. I hold putts from all over the place. Bobby Locke, we all in those days, because the greens were cut with a hand mower, when I played my first few tournaments in the world, they never even changed the cup. And Bobby Locke took the putter way back on the inside and then jabbed the ball. All the putters jabbed. There was never a better putter than Buddy Casper. Buddy Casper, Doug Ford, most people have never heard of him, won the Masters and the PGA. All of us jabbed the ball. We all hit down on the ball and jabbed it. And let me tell you, nobody putted better. Here is something. That people also forget. Jack Nicholas has the best record. Amen. And secondly, he finished second in nineteen majors. Now, only your wife knows you finishes. Your wife and your dog—the only two that know you finished second. Unfortunately,
0: <laughs> that's right. And speaking of majors, just about every golf fan knows you're one of five players to have won the career Grand Slam on the PGA Tour. You, Jack Nicholas, Gene Sarazen, and Ben Hogan, Tiger Woods being the five. But I'm not sure enough people know that you and Bernard Longer are the only two to win the career Grand Slam on the Champions Tour, which makes you the only player to have won it on both tours. That has to be a huge sense of pride for you.
1: Yes. People ask me the two greatest things of my golfing career, one as being the only man on the planet to win the Grand Slam on both tours. And secondly, this great country of the United States of America has been the Samaritan to the world to win the Medal of Freedom. That, to me, was such an honor because I spent my life fighting for freedom. And it was just the greatest honor bestowed upon me. So I've been very blessed in my life. And I've had a journey that's been unbelievable. A great family and also a wife who I was with for 72 years. Oh, my goodness, what a woman. How lucky I was. Mr.
0: Player, I noticed on Twitter people asking you for information or stories for behind-the-scenes things that go on at the Masters and Augusta National. What are some of those things that we don't know anything about that would be interesting for our listeners to hear?
1: Well, there's certain things that happen behind the scenes that I enjoy being there, and there's certain things behind the scenes that I don't enjoy being there. And that's just natural about life. Nothing is perfect. There's always pros and cons on both sides, and that's understandable. But Augusta and all the tournaments, anything that might not be right, they're endeavoring to make everything better every single year. And we as professional golfers, Are blessed, particularly at this time, to be able to have the kind of prize money they play for. It's unbelievable. As long as we can have young men not getting a sense of entitlement, because we're not entitled to a damn thing.
0: Mr. Player, just a couple of more before I let you go. I want to get your thoughts on this year's tournament. Who do you like?
1: Well, I fancy, I fancy John Rahm somehow, but it's very difficult to say you know, I keep expecting uh, Rory McIlroy to do it. And, uh, well, we'll see. I mean, uh but I don't know. I really don't know who to pick. I really have no idea because there's nobody that stands out as number one. I mean, I just don't know who to pick. It's the first time in history that I haven't seen somebody that I can say, well, he's definitely the best in the world. First time in history. You can go back to Bobby Jones. Now, let me tell you. There's a man who played with a walking stick as a shaft and a ball that went 80 yards left and and raked the bunkers with his feet and they had a hand mower that cut the greens and he went by car everywhere. He might be the best player that ever lived. Who knows?
0: Mr. Player, you've written several wonderful books. We've talked in the past how Don't Choke, I think should be required reading for every junior player. Gary Player's Black Book is another one of my favorites. Talk about what people will learn when they go out and get those books.
1: You know, young people are very reluctant to learn from their elders, which uh, fortunately I'm happy to say I was never like that. I was always seeking, seeking advice, seeking education, seeking improvement in every possible degree, whether it was my body, whether it was my mind, whether it was eating, whether it was studying, whether it was you know, meditation, whether it was improving my English. Because to me, an athlete, they should be learning to speak well because that's a great asset. And if you're going to represent companies of any kind, they want you to be able to conduct yourself and speak well. So it's a it's a fascinating business. And remember about golf. Golf is the only sport or one of the few that is play and stay. Every other sport, is play and away. You play football, which I love, That three years of playing, you're lucky if you walk away and you can walk. Most of these sports at the age of 40, they can't walk anymore. And golf, you're only reaching your prime at 40.
0: Mr. Player, a couple of days ago you announced that you started the Gary and Vivian Player Foundation. Talk about what you're doing with the new foundation.
1: Well, we've got a brand new uh, company formed Organization and it's headed by my daughter and a lot of top businessmen because when people donate money to charities, they want to know where that money's going. And so we formulated the best accountants, the best businessmen, and my daughter. And they can at any time, you know, they can come and check what's happening to the money they donate. And it's going to be, I went to the school in Philadelphia where these children really they're homeless. They've been homeless. And, I, and also down in Florida, the city of hope where people are homeless. Do you know, in the greatest country in the world, that one out of every six children are homeless? And here, what I never understood, and I never get involved in other people's politics, that how America can be giving all these other countries money, and many other countries are saying death to America, and you give them money instead of putting that money into the inner city, and into education, and into places in this country where they need the money. I'll I'll always be flabbergasted with that. All all my life, I'll never understand that.
0: Mr. Player, first of all, thank you so much for being generous with your time today. And I've told you this before, but I know you get interviewed hundreds of times a year. But you have become the voice of my conscience. If I don't want to go to the gym, I hear your voice in my head say, get up and go to the gym. If I'm going to the freezer for some ice cream in my head, I hear your voice say, put that down, that's sugar, that's poison, eat the fruit instead. (laughs) Telling me, get away from that, eat the blueberries instead. So thank you so much for being the conscience that I need.
1: What a nice compliment. And, you know, I don't believe in legacies myself. The greatest leader that in my time that I can think of is Sir Winston Churchill. And yet 30% of students wouldn't realize if it wasn't for him and also Roosevelt, we wouldn't be talking on this phone today in English anyway. So, but my legacy is to try and do something for the world on looking after your body, your health, eating, exercising, having love, laughing. And I can tell you, not 1% of the world do that. I'm going to repeat it. undereating, exercise, laughing, and having love in your heart, 1% of the world do it. And another thing, we've all become so critical and judgmental. Anybody does something wrong, everybody pounds on them like they've never done anything wrong. And I said on an interview, which will be relayed and played on Monday, I said, you know, it's interesting. I see our people are so critical about everybody and everything they can think of, particularly the media today. I said, if there's anybody that's never done something wrong in their life, I'd like to invite them to have lunch with me at Augusta next week. And I'd have lunch on my own.
0: Uh, Amen to that. (laughs) Mr. Player, (laughs) thank you so much. Okay. You mean a great deal to me. I appreciate you.
1: Thank you. God bless America. Bye-bye.
0: Have a great rest of your day, Mr. Player. That is the great Gary Player. And like I say, folks, this is the ninth consecutive year. I've had the privilege of having him on the show, tenth time overall. And each and every time, it is a huge privilege and so much fun getting to spend time with him. We learn a little bit more. We gain more of his insights. We learn about things that happened in the past. And it's just a huge honor to be able to say that Gary Player has been a part of the show now for nine consecutive years. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this very special edition of Next on the Tee. Join me every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can check out what our guest schedule looks like by going online to nextonthetea.net. You can stream this show on just about every single major podcasting site. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Podbean, player.fm. If you have a favorite podcasting site or app, we're probably on it. Just type in next on the T in the search bar. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to make us a part of your golf content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.